in your Bibles to the book of Titus, the book of Titus, um, a couple of prayer requests to keep in mind on the handout. There's a, there's a couple of, uh, prayer, uh, things I would like for you to, to be mindful of, um, one of them is really kind of a tragic situation that Dan- Janet just learned about a, a couple of weeks ago. But uh, her, uh, her friend's cousin, um, they, were, they had uh, uh, trailer problems and were pulled over, I think, in downtown Indianapolis. And while they were pulled over, they, they were robbed at gunpoint. And uh, the, both the mom and the dad were shot. There was a six-year-old in the car, and the mom actually died. Uh, so really tragic incident um and this actually happened to a good friend of janet's from high school her cousin her real close relative and so um so just be praying uh praying for that family uh the dad is still janet you have an update on the dad have you heard he's still in the intensive care yeah so um but and there were other children who were not present in the car but just pray for that family that had to experience that kind of violence and a tragic situation um, and then continued prayers for uh, Kim Marshall. So you probably got the emails this, this last week. And um, Steve was here. I was going to ask him an update. Oh, he, yeah, so Steve was here. Uh, but Kim is not, I think, understandably so. So she ended up being uh, septic and then was, um, it was, what was it, nurse? E. coli. That's it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I was trying to figure out what germ it was. So, um, but so had E. coli and so was on pretty strong um, antibiotics, but is now home. And so, um, and the, the last text I got from her, she said she's doing much better, still not quite the same, um, but just continue to pray, pray for, pray for uh, Kim. So, um, and then Wanted to say uh, thank you to everybody for all the work that you did last week while I was gone. Really grateful that I had the chance to get away. Um, in case you didn't know, I, I went to a conference out in the Chicagoland area. And it just so happened to be at a church that, from a friend of mine from college. And so I got the chance to be with a friend from uh, college and to hang out with him all weekend. And um, uh, he had his wife. I went to, to college with both of them. And so it was just a great opportunity. And the conference was, was awesome, was phenomenal, and it'll probably show up in a sermon series somewhere along the line, uh, but I really would look forward to, to sharing that with you, but it was fantastic. And so just appreciate all the work that was done while we were gone, and appreciate uh, Fabiano. Uh, how'd it go with Fabiano? Good? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I like that guy, and I'm glad that he was able to come and, and help us. Um, with that, let's read our passage of scripture today. I will pray and then we'll jump into our teaching, uh, continue our series in Titus on church basics. Our scripture reading will be Titus chapter one, verse, um, we'll begin in verse 10 and we will go through into chapter two to verse 15. So Titus one, verse 10 into chapter 2, verse 15. And this is the reading of, of God's word. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. 
They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, close quote. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. We'll stop in verse 1 there, and then I'll ask you to jump uh, down to verse 10. Excuse me, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is a reading of God's word. Say thanks be to God. God, we having heard your word, we ask now that you would Um, Make your word alive to us. Make it real to us. We'd ask that your uh, your chosen means that you have given us for our salvation and for our growth is uh, both your word and your spirit that you've given us. And so we ask God, having heard your word, we ask for your spirit to give us illumination and to speak to us, to speak to our hearts. Make this passage uh, alive to us that we can that we can know your will and that we could do it. We pray all of this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So a little recap. I feel like this poor series in Titus has gotten starts is in fits and starts. We kind of started, then we took a week off and then we started again and then we had a guest speaker and then we started uh, well again. Well, I think this is the third one in the series. So let me recap for us a little bit to give us a little background of where we are in this series, a little context to this passage, so we can understand a a little bit of the flow. The first week, we looked at the first four verses where Paul is uh, writing directly to Titus, whom he's left on the island of Crete, and that's what's in the background there. That's, That's the actual island of Crete. He's left on the island of Crete. Paul writes to him, and we kind of get an idea of what what the mission of the church is because of what Paul says about what his own mission is and what he commands for Titus to do. And remember, he is commanding these things to Titus as a letter to that's to be written for the whole church so that the whole church can understand what it is um, that Paul is saying to Titus, but what he's also kind of indirectly saying to everyone uh, else. First one is to know the mission. The second one is the importance of expository preaching. We saw this a couple of Weeks ago, the exposition of God's word, 
Today we're looking at uh, the third um, basic thing for the church, and that is a commitment to sound doctrine. And you could follow along in your handouts here too to guide us in our time. Commitment to sound doctrine. A couple of things were very important for Paul. Teaching. He uses several different words of teaching uh, in especially these pastoral letters about the importance of teaching that is to take place in the church. This message, uh, this message of the gospel is tied to the Old Testament scriptures. All of the word of God given to to the people of Israel of old, it's given to them. And then with the coming of Jesus, we now have these apostles explaining how all of the Old Testament makes now, now makes sense in the person of Jesus Christ. And that he's the fulfillment of all of that and all of the implications that go along with that. So teaching is a very important thing, very key thing for Paul, but not just any old teaching. This teaching needs to be what we saw in our passage here in a couple of places, and it's several places in Paul's letters, sound teaching. Notice with me, and if you would, you want to, you could turn in back to 1 Timothy, a couple of books before. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, he talks about sound doctrine. In chapter 6, verse 3, he talks about the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the teaching that accords with godliness. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3. He's talking about how the hearers will, will come to a time when people don't want to put up with sound teaching. He'll say for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And having itching ears they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Find teachers to just tell them what they want to hear. And then in Titus, we've seen this in a couple of, uh, both one, once in chapter 1 and, one, and once in chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 9, on the qualifications for the spiritual leaders of the church, he says of this person, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. He's not, not allowed to deviate from it in any way. He's to take this word and he's to hold, cling firmly to it so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. You see that there? How many of yours texts there in your Bible on there has a little footnote, a little textual note, a little superscript on the top next to the word sound, right? Titus chapter one, we saw the same, uh, same thing, excuse me, Titus chapter two, verse one. But as for you, teach one in accords with sound doctrine. How many of yours Bibles has a little footnote there up at the top? What does that footnote say at the bottom of the page? Nice and loud. Or healthy, right? Okay. Or healthy. So sound or healthy. It could be either one of those terms. Paul is now, he's talking about not just any teaching. This needs to be sound teaching or healthy teaching, healthy teaching. The Greek word here is hugies. Um, I just got the look. You guys all know what that means. Like, don't make you say it. Hugies. Hugies. Thank you. Thank you. Hugies. Hugiaino um, is the verb. Uh, but if that sounds a little bit familiar, it's where we get our word hygiene. Hygiene. 
The English word hygiene comes from this word. So if you can see, like, good hygiene, which we know all about now in the last six months. Who knew that we were such terrible people at hygiene for millennia? Now, all of a sudden, we need to be good hygiene people, right? So um, it's cleanliness, clean, healthy, sound. So Paul is really stressing here for the church. One of the things that's absolutely essential for the church, not only should they know their mission, not only should they preach the scriptures, expositorily preach the scriptures, but that they should hold firmly and be committed to healthy teaching, healthy doctrine or sound doctrine. Paul is seriously concerned with teaching, especially that it is sound because unsound teaching, unhealthy doctrine, unhealthy teaching makes people sick, spiritually sick. So today we're going to look at uh, Paul's refutation of those who were teaching unsound things. And then we're going to end by getting a little survey of what sound teaching is, because I think that's what Paul gets to in chapter two. First, who are these unhealthy, unsound teachers? We see in verses 10 through 16. We're going to look at this in three ways. First, the content. What's the content of these teachers? Um, notice uh, the content of this sick and diseased kind of teaching. Notice what it says in verse 10 of chapter 1. He goes, for there are many. Now, remember, he's just talked about giving instruction in sound doctrine in verse 9. And he says in verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Okay, the circumcision party. Now, if you know uh, some of the, the New Testament books, Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, he was having to deal with this group of people called the Judaizers who were coming into Gentile churches after Paul was there and shared the gospel with them, that they can now be justified with God, reconciled with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that all of the promises of Israel now are now given to the church. That's a mix of believing Jews and Gentiles. And he goes and explains all of this. And then Paul leaves to go to another place and a whole bunch of people go, hey, you believe in Jesus. That's wonderful. That's great. Uh, but you got to go a little bit further to really be saved. You got to go a little bit further and they inquire as to what that might mean. And they say, well, you've got to be circumcised. Okay. All the guys kind of cringe now, right now, the grown men, you now understand a little bit what was going on in, because that was the sign of the covenant in the old Testament, the circumcision. So they were saying, great, you're, you're, you believe in Jesus. You're almost there to being fully saved. What you need to do is go the rest of the way. It's a big commitment. Okay, that's what they were saying. If you don't believe me, that that's Acts 15 spells out this exact issue. Acts 15 verse one, um, where this is what kind of precipitates this major council that happens in Jerusalem in Acts 15 as they're bringing all of these leaders together. Um, notice in Acts chapter 15, verse one, it says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Quote, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this is what led Paul and Barnabas to go, hold on, time out here. No, 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 that is not. You are justified in God's sight, salvation by faith alone, 
grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by doing the works of the Mosaic Covenant. That's what the rest of chapter 15 is about. So when it says the circumcision party, this is the group that Paul is talking about. They were going along right after Paul, wherever he would go, and they would say, good job, you believe in Jesus, but to go the whole way, you got to do the law, these, the ceremonial laws of, of Moses here. So the circumcision party, uh, notice also in verse 14, uh, they were devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Okay? They were teaching non-biblical teachings, but human teachings that were derived from them and were saying, hey, you need to do all of these things too. I think an excellent example of this kind of thing that he was talking about, that, that Paul is re- referencing here, is a little bit what Jesus was having to deal with the, with the Pharisees. And in Mark chapter 7, we have a, a great uh, example of this. And if you wanted to read the whole thing, I would read Mark ch- uh, chapter 7, verses 5 through uh, 13. But in particular, uh, he's talking about uh, washing of the ceremonial washing of hands before before you eat and he's kind of critical of jesus's disciples that they're they're not seeming to do this and um so the the scribes and the pharisees come and they're critical of jesus and they're saying why hey why don't your why don't your disciples walk according to the traditions of the elders right not saying why are, why are they not following the old testament scriptures he's saying why are you not following the traditions of the elders which were the things that were like barnacles on a ship added to the the scriptures and jesus's response to them after quoting uh, or in quoting isaiah he says well does isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me and then this key line teaching as doctrines the commandments of men Teaching the commandments of men, not God's commandments, man created commandments, and teaching those as if those were doctrines. Jesus goes on to say, You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. I think that's exactly the same situ- situation that, um, that these guys, uh, that Paul is dealing with here in, in Titus chapter 1. So the content of their teaching, very likely, given that they're the circumcision party, is you have to go a little bit farther in order to be saved. Faith is not enough. It's, it's faith in Jesus plus these things. And he calls these things human traditions that are added on top of the, the word of God. That's the content of what they were teaching. What about their character? He gives a little bit of their character as well. Notice in, back again in verse uh, verse 10. Notice the terms he uses to describe them. Insubordinate. This is rebellious or unruly. And in the context here, he's talking about those who are rebellious against the gospel, against the word of of God, against the very message that Paul himself was preaching. They were rejecting Paul. They were rejecting what Paul was teaching in these, these churches. Which is a a dangerous road to walk, isn't it? Because who commissioned Paul to do these things? Jesus himself, right? 
Jesus himself commissioned Paul. So to kind of doubt Paul's authority here and to be insubordinate to, to, to Paul is the, the same as being insubordinate to Jesus himself. So Paul calls them insubordinate. They're empty talkers or kind of literally full of meaningless talk. Okay, words that have no meaning. Somebody who could talk, maybe they could talk very eloquently, but ultimately they're not saying anything. Know anybody like this? Right? Know anybody? If they're young enough, you should encourage them in their career direction. Right? In politics, right? Saying lots of things and quite eloquently and then ended up not saying anything really at all. They're like clouds without water. Clouds without rain. You know, looks like it could bring blessing and ends up bringing nothing. Empty talkers are these guys. And then verse 10, deceivers. Just not even telling the truth. Verse 11, he says this. That they are teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Okay, so apparently this, this distortion of things is not, you know, for their own livelihood. This is not, you know, a, a good kind of gain. This is a shameful gain. So they're teaching wrongly and they're doing it for the motivation of, you know, maybe it's fairly lucrative, this business that they're doing. He goes on to say they're defiled and unbelieving. Nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Paul paints a really good picture here, doesn't he? And this last one, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Okay, this technical term for confessing for confessing Christ. Paul is making a basic judgment on them that their profession because of their false teaching and the way that they're going about doing it in total insubordination, talking, talking to just, you know, um, in a lucrative way for their own selves, not for the sake of those who are hearing and teaching what is false. Paul is saying he's making a judgment on their faith because of it. He goes on testable, disobedient, detestable, disobedient and unfit for any good work. So that was the content of what they were teaching, the character of those who are teaching these things. And now the consequences, what is to be done to these kind of teachers? Paul says, verse 11, they must be silenced. They must be silenced. There just simply are some ideas and teachings that have to be rejected. This doesn't mean we can't talk about some of the teachings that you know, some people might put out there or something that's new or innovative. Sure, we should assess it. We should look at it. We should compare it with Scripture and challenge it. But there's some that just ought to be outright be rejected right away. Paul is saying these guys must be, must be silenced. Notice what he says in verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, he says. And this is the often neglected part of the pastor's teaching. I think a lot of people have in mind a concept of what, you know, a pastor should be. You know, maybe they're a great orator. Or maybe they're the ones that have a really good bedside manner and can, you know, hold the hands. I mean, those are, those are good things. Those are good things. But the idea of one who rebukes sharply 
seems kind of like, ooh, that doesn't seem very pastoral. When you read the pastoral letters, you realize that's actually quite pastoral to rebuke sharp, sharply. This is echoing what he says in verse 9, right? Not only are you to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. To rebuke those who contradict the sound doctrine. So they must be silenced. They Therefore, they must be rebuked sharp, sharply. And then uh, Paul ends this whole passage in verse 15 where he says at the end, after he's just given an explanation of what sound doctrine is, we're going to get to here in a moment. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all, ex- with all authority. Exhort is like the encourage and motivate here, brothers and sisters, here's the truth. Now how this is how we can live in light of it. And then rebuke those, rebuke with all authority, he says. Let no one disregard you. Now, What's the goal of the rebuke? Before we move on to looking at what sound doctrine is in chapter 2, there's a point and a goal to this rebuke. It's not to win the argument, not just. It's not just to win the argument, but to win them. To win them. Notice verse 13. Therefore rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. I think there's, uh, as I just mentioned, one kind of typical error that you see for, for pastors is to kind of have this one concept in your mind that's, that rebuking anybody is just kind of off limits. There's another extreme that is, we're going to rebuke any and everyone we could find. And we're going to do it just so we could win. And I could prove that I'm right. And my blog statistics can go up. No, the, the point is... That you would rebuke them sharply. Why? So that their faith can be, can be made sound. Paul says this uh, in uh, 2 Timothy. In kind of a parallel. 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. But kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps. And then he adds this. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth correcting your opponents with gentleness who knows god may grant them repentance he goes on and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will wow right i can't tell you how many tweets i have started to tweet and then deleted right Because I I catch myself and I realize, actually, that would not be rebuking in gentleness and kindness. That would not be rebuking to the goal of making them sound in the faith. That would be to make me look good or to show that they were wrong. So the goal, and this, this is true for everyone here, the goal is that we all have an obligation. We all are teaching the faith in some way or another, right? If you're, if you're a parent, you're teaching your, your children. If you're in a, in a business or in a work setting, you have an opportunity to share the gospel with other people around you. And so you're going to encounter false ideas. It's very important 
that you correct. You don't, you don't go, well, that's a very interesting idea. Oh, okay, I, you know, I have a different view, but no, I'm not going to talk about it. It's, it's okay to correct those ideas, but we do so with gentleness and kindness in the hopes that we, we may win them. But if you can't win them, you have to protect the flock. This is in particular for pastors. If you can't win them, they need to still be silenced for the sake of the sheep. So that's what that's who these unhealthy and unsound teachers are. Paul is stressing again that he's deeply concerned with the teaching, especially that it's sound and healthy. Well, we've talked about those who are going against it and what should be done to them, who they are, what it is that they taught and what, what should be done to them. But it would be it would be appropriate for us to kind of well well what is sound teaching? Does Paul give us any hints here in this passage? I think so, and I think that that's what's the summary that he gives in chapter two, verses ten through fifteen. Because remember, he just had talked about sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. Remember the footnote in verse in chapter one, verse nine, and then after dealing with all of these unhealthy teachers. At the end of chapter 1, in chapter 2, verse 1, he begins, But as for you, Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So he goes, all right, here's the counter. This is unhealthy teachers teaching unhealthy doctrine, and this is what should be done to them. But Titus, here, this is what you should be doing is teaching sound doctrine. And then he resumes to this idea again in verse, verse 10, where he again uses this word doctrine, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We're going to get to verses 2 through uh, uh, 9 in another passage, but I just wanted to show you, he's talking to, to, Paul is exhorting Timothy, excuse me, Paul is exhorting Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And in verse 10, he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then the next five verses, I think, gives us a good glimpse of it. And let me read it, and then I will give you five kind of ways of breaking this up and dividing it up into your, to your minds. So if you would, again, follow along as I read. This is the basic basis for teaching sound doctrine. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Beautiful passage. Fantastic passage. And loaded with so much. But let me just give you five ways that you can kind of, and you can, on your own, maybe you could study and explore and look up some, your, your study Bibles and, and try to look at your cross-references. But let me give you five ways of thinking about this. And I'm going to reorder it a little bit for you. And so here are the five ways to think about this. First is God's law and our sinful lawlessness kind of embedded there in verse 14 
The purpose that Christ came was to redeem us from all lawlessness. Lawlessness. You know, other places in the New Testament speaks about sin, which is missing the mark of what God has commanded. Here, Paul uses a different term. He's talking about the law, the moral law of God as summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, right? The law of God. And one, one way of characterizing our condition in our relationship with God apart from Christ is lawlessness. Lawlessness. Plenty of examples we could give in today's news, right? Certain cities in our country where, uh, where mobs of people inflamed with their own passions or ideas are disregarding any societal norm and disregarding the laws of that city. So much so that the law enforcement officers can't even do anything, right? If I wanted to give a picture of lawlessness on a minor scale, well, that... Go to social media and check out the news and see what's happening in some of these cities. Okay, this is not a political statement. I just wanted to give just as a just as a mental picture lawlessness. Now expand that to every sinner in relationship to God and His moral holy law, lawlessness. That's the term Paul is using here. So embedded in there, we have to start with this. God has a law, and our condition is a state of lawlessness, sinful lawlessness. Verse 12, he uses a couple of other terms, ungodliness and worldly passions. Okay? This is our, this is our danger, that we, we haven't just sinned or made an error or a couple of mistakes. We have, we are lawless apart from Christ. That's the first one, God's law and our sinful lawlessness. Second, think of it this way, God's grace and our salvation. Verse 11, but the grace for the grace of God has appeared. Grace. This term means unmerited favor, undeserved Kindness, goodwill. That's just what the word itself means in the ancient Greek literature. It means, oh, well, that's a really kind act. Somebody came and brought over a whole bunch of things. Oh, well, we were gone on vacation. A whole bunch of people mowed our lawn. Well, that was really gracious of them, right? That's, that's true. But in relationship, uh, but, but the grace of God has a different characteristic and quality entirely. In the context of the Bible and God and man, we need to not think of this in kind of sentimental kind of terms. Oh, God is just really kind. It's, it's a little bit more than that. Grace of God means unmerited favor in the place of merited wrath. Unmerited favor in the place of merited wrath. Why merited wrath? We just saw that. 
lawlessness. Our condition before God is in utter lawlessness. And it's in that state of utter lawlessness that God comes and he's not just a little bit kind to us. He's amazingly kind to us. Not just a, you know, unmerited grace that we didn't deserve. But not giving the merited wrath that we do deserve. So scale of magnitude bigger. We're not just ill-deserving of the kindness he gives us. We're hell-deserving. We're hell-worthy. So this grace of God has appeared. And I love that, again, this is so packed with so much stuff here. The grace of God has appeared. This has the sense of uh, a little bit like it carries the idea that this grace has been there and present all along. But it's now it's like it's shown up. Okay? It's kind of like, you know, when... um, Uh, It's kind of like everything's kind of behind the curtain. The main actor for the drama is backstage. The audience knows that the main uh, main actor is there. He just hasn't made his appearance onto the stage yet. The, the, The scene opens. The music starts. The people are coming out. The other players and it's setting up the drama. And all of a sudden the main actor comes on the stage. It's like that. He didn't just come into existence at this point. There's this anticipation that he is there and it's waiting to be uh, uh, revealed. I love that's what Paul is saying here. This grace, long promised in the Old Testament, has now appeared with the coming of God's son, Jesus Christ. I think he's echoing a little bit what he writes to the Galatians in Galatians chapter um, in Galatians chapter uh, four. Where in Galatians chapter 4, he, he speaks about, uh, let me get the, the passage here real quick. It might be helpful to, to read that and know this, uh, uh, because I'm going to reference this here in a moment. Uh, when Paul speaks about when the fullness of time had come. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So you've got a little bit of the law language in there as well, too. To redeem those under the law so that we may receive adoption as sons. But notice how he begins that whole thing. In the fullness of time. This has been a plan of God for ages past. And promised and given in shadows and types to the people of Israel all throughout history. And now it has come in Jesus Christ. This grace has appeared and it's bringing salvation for all people. Now, don't think universal salvation. Think of uh, representative of all mankind, Jews and Gentiles, by grace alone, through faith alone. That this redemption is not just for, for the Jews, but for Gentiles too. And that this new covenant is for the nation. That's the grace of God in our salvation. Number three, Christ's cross and our redemption. Christ's cross and our redemption. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. This is a technical, almost a technical term. For the willing submission of Jesus Christ to the Father, to be obedient even to death, even death on a cross. Elsewhere, Paul uses this term, and let me just read these for you. Galatians 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who 
gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. First Timothy chapter two, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Which is the testimony given at the proper time, which ties in with what we just said about the grace appearing. What about Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I live now in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me. And here's that term again, gave himself for me. This self set emptying, self emptying, sacrificial giving over of the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said, the son of man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is to redeem us, to buy us back. This is the redemption part. So he doesn't just save us from our sins. He buys us. And the language here is of buying someone, uh, redeeming a piece of property or um, whether it could be land or it could be, you know, another uh, items or thing that were just kind of maybe they got onto the ransom block and somebody now buys them back. Or in the Old Testament language, you've lost some property, but maybe you might have a relative who's willing to come in and buy that property back for you to keep it in the family. You know, a kinsman redeemer, this redeeming and buying back. So not just that he saves us from our sin, he redeems us and adopts us into his family, as it says in Galatians 4. Amazing. All through the cross of Christ. Number four, the present evil age, or the present age in our purification. Verse 12, the subject here being the grace of God. The, the grace of God also does this. Not only does it bring our salvation and our redemption, this grace of God does this too. It trains us, it is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The profound power of the gospel of the grace of God is that it produces a change in us, deep within us, to change our nature and our desires. That's what the gospel does. The grace of God, when we encounter the grace of God, we're radically changed by it. That all of the uncontrolled following of our passions and our lusts, all of our unrighteous behavior, all of our ungodly living, that we actually are able to renounce those things that had such strong power over our lives from the cradle to the grave. That the grace of God is able to train us to, to renounce those things and to live upright, godly lives in the present age. So from Christ, from Christ's ascension until he comes back, this present age, we have the power to renounce those things. And that is grounded in this grace of unmerited kindness and favor of God toward us. It's actually instructive. Okay. Uh, or the, the term pedagogical. Did I say that right? You know, the, uh, you know, a pedagogue is like a tutor, a teacher 
who takes a child and walks them through and works the thing. That's the word that's used here for training. The grace of God has a pedagogical function. It trains us to renounce these things. And also, oh man, just can I keep going? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so not only is it doing this, training us to renounce those things in the present evil age, um, it also does a couple of other things. Verse 14, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay? The purifying, this is the word katharizo, uh, you know, catharsis, cathartic. It's purification. It's to cleanse. Uh, it's to, like, so used of the, those who are cleansed of their leprosy and the, the healing has come and the skin is clear. Uh, to cleanse by atoning for sin. It's used in Hebrews that way. Um, ceremonially clean. It's all of these things. This is what the, what Jesus does. The gospel of the grace of God does for us is it purifies us even in a dark and evil, wicked age. It cleanses us of those things. And then this last one, and I, again, just so much is back. But this line, we talked about this before the service, a people for his own possession. A people for his own possession. You could read through that and maybe not catch what he's saying here but if you read through the bible and you kind of understand god and his covenant relationship with the people of israel abraham isaac and jacob this is the very this is almost a direct quote of what the lord god himself says on mount sinai that i've come and i'm making a covenant with you so that you might be a people of my possession paul is now applying that to this Gentile church in Titus. Amazing. All of the covenant promises of God that were given to the people of old in the New Testament is now comes in a new covenant that he makes with this church. And he says, and you become a people of his own possession. Amazing. And then lastly, number five, Christ's glorious return in our blessed hope. Verse 13, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is when the present evil age that he's just spoke about comes to an end. Christ comes back and we're waiting for it. And so our purification that he's been doing in our lives to purify us and train us to renounce ungodliness, we will actually now be perfected and perfected to holiness, radiant with the, the image of Christ. This is the gospel. This is sound doctrine. There's more that could be added. We can mine the rest of the New Testament scriptures and see all of these wonderful, amazing promises. But here's five that, that Paul gives us here. God's law and our sinful lawlessness God's grace in our salvation, Christ's cross in our redemption, the present age in our purification, and Christ's glorious return in our blessed hope. We dare, we dare not manipulate, distort, or twist any of these truths. Because these truths are what save us and what purify us and make us suitable citizens in his kingdom and responsible children in God's family.
Amen? Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our great God and Savior, we thank you once more that we can come together as your people. We thank you that we had the opportunity, as, as Rachel said earlier, to gather with the angels in heaven this morning and to worship and sing along with them. And we're grateful, God, that you, your living and active word is here, that it's in our laps. What a privilege that is that in your providence and wisdom that we would be able to have your scriptures. And so, God, we thank you that you not only warn us to keep an eye out for those who would bring in sick and diseased and unhealthy teaching into the church, but that you also give us, as Paul did in summary form, this beautiful picture of the sound teaching and healthy teaching, teaching that gives life and cleanses us, that brings hygiene to us and makes us healthy. And so, God, we thank you for your word. God, we pray now as your people, as we uh, now depart and go into the world, that you would empower us as your witnesses to these truths. May we learn these more and study these more and meditate on these and reflect on them. But that may our lips be uh, quick to share the encouraging words here with others. We'd ask that you would do that in and through us. And it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Friends, uh, let's stand for our, our closing uh, benediction. And again, if you have any questions or have anything that you would like to pray, uh, that you would like for us to add to our prayer list, uh, please feel free to come up and, and talk to me. Um, and I'd be glad to, uh, um, glad to, to, uh, speak with you. Uh, and also I always forget this, but reminder that the offering box is out in the table and in the hallway and, uh, brothers and sisters. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our father and the fellowship that we share in, in the Holy spirit be with you as you go. Thank you. Thank you.